Well, how many of you brought your Bible with you to church tonight? And will you hold up the Bible all over the building? I want to ask you to join me, if you will, on page number 694, if you have an old Schofield Bible, 694, or the book of Proverbs, chapter number 30. Proverbs chapter 30. And I want to read a couple of verses here and just kind of use this to spring back into a subject that we have been dealing with here recently in some of our services. Proverbs chapter number 30. And so uh, you'll find your place there. Thank you again for being here. I'd like to encourage you to be back Sunday morning, whichever service you come to, uh, the, the early service or the morning, uh, the uh, later morning service. I encourage you to be in church, pray for the services. If you can, don't just come by yourself. Bring somebody with you. You know, God can do anything. See if you agree with what I'm about to say. God can do anything, can he? God can do anything. But there's one thing he can't do, and that is he can't save somebody where everybody is already saved. I mean, what's it going to do? Resave us again? There's no, no such thing in the Bible taught about being resaved. So the only way we can get folks saved is to bring lost people with us to church. And I'd like to encourage you to do that, Sunday. Don't come by yourself. Bring somebody with you. And get on the phone Saturday night. I have a habit of doing that, texting people, calling folks, and to tell them about church. And some of them come, some of them don't come. But uh, I tell you what, uh, you know, you can't go fishing until you get your line in the water. You can talk about it all you want to, but the only way you can catch fish is get your hook out there. And uh, so let's spend some time maybe Saturday night throwing a hook out or two and uh, just asking the Lord to help us in these days. Proverbs chapter 30, and I want to be, read verse 5 and verse number 6. I read these verses a couple of weeks ago, but here's what the Bible said. Every word of God is pure. Now, if you agree with that, would you say amen? So we read now in that first statement about the purity of the Word of God. Look the word pure up, and it means tried, tried by fire. Now, they just sang out a moment ago, talked about that fire, and the Lord will be there with us. But the Bible has been proven, it's been tried in the fires, and it's pure. The fires of persecution have done nothing more than to burn the dross out of the people of God and give to us the Word of God, the, the purity of the Word. Every Word of God is pure. And then we read not only about the purity of God's Word, but we read about the purpose of God's Word. Now, the purpose of God's Word is to introduce us to the one, as we continue to read in verse 5, the one who is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. Boy, aren't you glad you got a shield about you tonight? Amen. Thank God for the shield and the person of the Lord Jesus. The Bible says our, uh, the Lord God is a, is, a, is a sun and shield. The Lord God, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. That's Psalms 84, uh, along about the end of the chapter there. God is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. But how could we know God had we not had a Bible? So the purpose of the Bible is to introduce us to the one who is our shield as we put our trust in him. So we read about the purity of the Bible. Then we read about the purpose of the Bible. But in the verse number 6, we read about the perfection of the Bible. Because there in verse 6 it says this, add, not, add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Can I say, the Bible is perfect. 
Amen. We don't have to add anything to the Bible. We're certainly not going to take anything from the Bible. It is the perfect Word of the living God. You know, when God sealed it up in Revelation 22, 21, there is, there is no new Word from God as far as the Bible is concerned. And uh, we got a perfect Bible. The Word of God is perfect. We don't need anything else to go along with it. I remember years ago, I used to work with an old boy. His name was Van, and he was a Mormon. We called him Van the Mormon. Man. And he was a Mormon. And he put his faith and confidence in the Book of Mormon. And one day we were talking about it, and I just said, where in the world do y'all find the Book of Mormon at in the Bible? Well, he tried to take me back over to the Book of Ezekiel, about chapter 36 or 37, about two sticks that Ezekiel saw and, and, and wrote upon those sticks. And he said, right there is the Book of Mormon. Well, I'm glad I got the Bible tonight. I don't have the word of some man on, on any subject. I have the Word of God. So in these days, we're thinking along these, these lines, Bible words that every child of God should know. Bible words. The Bible said in verse 5, every word of God. So we're talking about just the words of God, the words of the Bible. And I want to talk a little bit more about that tonight. Let's pray. Father, would you bless your Word? Help us tonight as we look at the Word the Word of God, and try to pull out some words of the Bible and, uh, and explain them, offer up an explanation of what they mean to us living in these days. So bless your Word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, for quite a while now, I guess in our Sunday night services, and now we've moved it to Wednesday night, we've been in this series of sermons about some of the prominent words that are found throughout the pages of God's Word. I'm calling them words that God's people ought to be familiar with as we live out these last days. Now, of course, being people of the Bible, we believe that every book of the Bible is the, the Word of God. We believe every chapter of the Bible is inspired of God. We believe every verse of the Bible is inspired of God, therefore every word of the Bible is inspired of God. And being the inspired word of God, it becomes very important to us as believers. I've told you this before. You know, when we spend time with our Bible, in reality, we're spending time with Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Oftentimes throughout the Bible, Jesus is called the word of God, the word of God. Of God. So as we spend time in our Bible, reading our Bible daily, meditating upon the Bible, studying the Bible, guess what? In reality, I'm spending time with Jesus. That's what we ought to do anyway, is spend some time with Jesus. So it's vitally important for us as believers to stay in the Bible. You know, one of the greatest New Year's resolutions any of us can make is to get into the Bible more this year. So we believe the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is God's sole authority for our lives and sole authority for our churches. If you want to know the heart and the mind of God about any matter, all you have to do is get into your Bible. As somebody has once said, the Bible is beneath us to give a foundation for us to build upon. The Bible is around us to give us boundaries to govern our lives. The Bible is within us to help us to grow and develop our faith. And the Bible is above us to guide us as we live for God upon this earth and make our way toward heaven. Thank God 
for the Bible. Now, we know in the last days, we're told that in the Bible, that wickedness is going to abound on every side. And we're seeing that happen right before our very eyes. But we also know that not only is wickedness going to abound on every side, but we also know that deception and ignorance is going to abound on every side as well. Therefore, it is vitally important for us to get the truth of God's Word into our hearts and hang on to the Word of God. Let me give you some good verses. Look at these verses right here. It says this, despise not prophesying. Now let's stop. What does that mean, despise not prophesying? Well, we'd say in our day, we'd say it like this, don't get mad at preaching. Amen. You know, thank God for still preachers that will stand up and preach the Bible to us. And I'm, I, man, I'm just one among many. And God has given our country some great preachers in these days. And I'm just one among many preachers, not great ones, but preachers who stand up and try to preach the Bible. And we're told, man, don't despise. Don't despise preaching. Don't get mad at preachers who preach the Bible. That's what despise, not prophesying mean. But then it goes on to say this in the next verse. Prove all things. That means check it out in the Bible. What's the Bible say? Try the spirits, whether they be of God. The Bible said to prove all things, and then it says this, to hold fast. Hang on to that which is good. And that's why I'm trying to get us in the Bible. Bible words. We give our attention to some great words of the Bible. Now, of course, you know several weeks ago we started with the letter A. The, and I looked up some A words that are in the Bible. It's important for us to know as we live out these last days. We thought about the word altar, the word atonement, and the word amen. Not a women, but Amen. Those are good A Bible words. We looked at others. Then we moved to the letter B, and we talked about the word blood. Thank God for the blood, the life of the flesh. Leviticus 17, 11 is in the blood, and God said, I've given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for your souls. Thank God for the blood. We, we looked at the word blood. We looked at that phrase, born again, the word baptism, the word brethren. Then we moved to the letter C, and we came upon these words, the cross, Christ, church, and Christian. Great letters, words that begin with the letter C. And then last time, we dwelt and we dealt with some of the words of the Bible that begin with the letter D. And we found words like this, disciple. What about this one, devil? What about this one, death? And what about this one? Doctrine. And tonight, now, we move to the letter E. Now, i got to tell you something. I struggled this week because when I got my concordance out and uh, I started looking in the back of my Bible and that concordance, and then I got my big Strong's concordance out, the one thing I found about words in the Bible that begin with the letter E is that most of those words are are nouns. They are names or they're titles for something. Uh, we, we find in the Bible that some of the great people of the Bible were named names that we begin with the letter E. For instance, Eve and Enoch and Eli and Elijah and Elijah and Elizabeth. 
I mean, man, many people in the Bible, their names begin with the letter E. Then I, I found this out. There are six books in our Bible that are named, names that begin with the letter E. There's the book of Exodus, the book of Ezra, the book of Esther, the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ezekiel, and the book of Ephesians. So all uh, six of the books of the Bible that begin with the letter E. Boy, I struggled looking for some words in the Bible that begin with the letter E. But I, I want you to just be relieved to know that I found some. I know, I know, I know you're, you're just sitting there thinking, whoa, man, I'm glad. But I've got three or four words tonight that I'd like to mention from the Bible that begins with the letter E. All right, first of all, I want us to consider this word right here, the word elect. The word elect. Now that word is used 20 times in the Bible. You ever read that word in the Bible? That except those days should be shortened, the elect would not be saved. I mean, that, those, that word elect is used predominantly, predominantly is used in the New Testament. It is found in the Old Testament a, a few times. But oddly enough, God uses that word elect to identify three people in the Bible. See if you don't agree with this. First of all, sometimes in the Bible, God calls his son elect. In the book of Isaiah, if you'll look at this verse right here, Isaiah 42 verse 1, God says, that, God says this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine, and then there's that word, mine elect, he said, in whom my soul delighteth, I put my spirit upon him, he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. That's an Old Testament prophecy about the Lord Jesus, and God said, he is my elect. And then I moved over to the New Testament. I found out there's one time in the New Testament God called Jesus his elect. And it's over in the book of 1 Peter, chapter number 2, and verse number 6, where the Bible said, It is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. And then here's what God said. Elect, precious, and he that believeth on him, mine elect, shall not be confounded. So I find in the Bible that sometimes when that word elect appears in the Bible, it is in reference to the Lord Jesus himself. But more often than not, when we find that word elect in the Bible, it is a reference to God's people, the nation of Israel. Oftentimes, in fact, in fact, eight different occasions in the Bible where we find the word elect, God uses that word in conjunction with the nation of Israel. Look at this verse right here. Again, back in the book of Isaiah, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, then there it is, mine elect. So God called, used that name, uh, that, that title, elect, to refer to Jesus, and he also used that title, elect, to refer to the nation of Israel. Now, especially when you get over in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, and you're dealing with those end-time prophecies, and God starts talking about his elect, it is in direct reference to the nation of Israel. But did you know sometimes in the Bible, God uses that word elect as a title for his own people? I'm talking about saved people. I'm talking about people just like you and just like me. You know, there are many names that God gives to us in the Bible. He calls us sons and children and sheep and servants and soldiers. But you know, there's a couple of times in the Bible that God even refers to the church as his 
elect. Look at this verse right here, Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who, uh, by the way, verse 32 says, And if God be for us, who can be against us? Talking about the Lord Jesus. God is for us. And then he says this, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Boy, the devil charges us. He accuses us to God. Uh, he, he shouts uh, slanderous accusations against you and me into the very throne room of God's grace. But aren't you glad there's one that is justifying us in the presence of God when the accusations are brought against us? I'm glad there's one up in heaven. Oh, amen. That's got our back. We got a lawyer up there who is the perpetuation for our sins. He's standing there. He's interceding on our behalf, on the behalf of God's elect. And then over in the book of Colossians chapter 3, verse number 12, put on therefore, again now, talking to the Colossian Christians, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness, mind, meekness, and so on. I said all that to say this, that word elect, that's a good Bible word. And you say, preacher, how do I know who it's referring to? Well, just read the text around it. Because sometimes God used it to talk about his son. Sometimes God used it to talk about the nation of Israel. And then sometimes God uses that word to talk about those of us who are saved. Boy, that word elect, that is a good Bible Word. Now we move to the next one. And it is the word election. Now I got to tell you, I know what you're thinking right now because most of the time when we talk about election, we're always talking about a Tuesday in November, Republicans and Democrats, and we think about getting out and voting for candidates. You know, we've just come through a presidential election. But the word, the Bible word election is quite different from the, the election, as the word election as we use it in our day. Now, we're called elect. And the reason that we have been called, that we are called elect is because of the election. That's right. The Bible has much to say on the subject of election. Now, I've got to tell you something, be honest with you. The Bible doctrine of election has caused a lot of controversy in the church down through the ages. Many churches have died or, in the process, or are in the process of dying simply because they went to an extreme when it comes to the doctrine of election. They read into it something that God had never intended uh, to be. And because of going to an extreme on the, on, on the doctrine of election, they stopped all their soul winning efforts. They quit running their buses. They quit reaching out to folks and trying to get them saved. And as such, their congregations have grown older and over, older. And eventually, if not already, the last one will die and the church will be shut up. And it was all because they were wrong on the doctrine of election. I, uh, my daddy was brought up in a primitive Baptist church. And primitive Baptists, I, I only know, and I'm not even sure how this happened. I think there's only two or three people there now. But I've only seen in my lifetime one primitive Baptist church that was ever built onto. Because it's dying. I mean, man, the older people that attend the primitive Baptist churches, sometimes called hard shells, whatever you want to call them, but the reason that their churches are dying is because they're wrong 
on the doctrine of election. And so they, they don't go so winning. They don't reach out to anybody because in them, their mentality, well, if God has chosen somebody to get saved, they're going to get saved. And if God has chosen for them not to be saved, there's nothing we can do about it anyway. So just forget about it. Let's just meet in our church. And the sad thing about it is their churches have died or are in the process of dying. You know why? They're wrong on the doctrine of election. Let me give you a little equation right here. Look at this equation right here. Extremism on election equals elimination of, evangel of evangelism. What does that mean? When you go to the extreme on the doctrine of election, and you get way out there in a place God never intended for you to be, first thing you're going to do is quit soul winning and quit running buses and trying to get people saved because you're going to develop, develop the mentality, well, if God wants them saved, he'll save them. And I'll tell you the reason a lot of churches have bought into that is simply because it takes the heat off the church and puts the heat on God. Can I have an amen? Boy, I'll tell you something. It's making great inroads now. A lot of Southern Baptist churches in our day, the doctrine of Calvinism, or some people call it Reformed theology, is making a great comeback in our day. Many churches are struggling now, struggling because of, uh, of the doctrine of election. It's making a comeback in these days. And the reason I said it takes the heat off us is because we don't have to go soul winning. We don't have to go knocking on doors. We don't have to run buses anymore. And really, it just throws it all up on God and say, well, God, if you want them to go, you'll save them anyway. Ain't nothing we can do about it. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't believe that. I do believe God does the saving. I get that. But I also believe that God wants us who are saved to reach out to the unsaved to try to get them under the sound of the gospel so that they can be saved. Now, when it comes to the doctrine of election, let's talk about that for just a moment. There's a couple of other words that, you know, oftentimes you hear surrounding the, the, the doctrine of election in the Bible. The first word is the word foreknowledge. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge. What does that mean? And then there's another word you hear oftentimes, and that's the word predestination. So election, foreknowledge, and predestination kind of all kind of in the same area code when it comes to this thing called election. What is foreknowledge? Foreknowledge simply means that God knows from the beginning who's going to get saved in the end. God understands. God knows. God has foreknowledge of who will be saved and who won't be saved. Look at this verse right here in John chapter 6. For there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not. And who should betray him? In other words, Jesus said, all right, I know from the beginning who will and who will not be saved. I believe that. I believe God knows who will and who won't be saved. But I don't know that. You don't know that. And the truth of the matter is we may not know that, but I still know one thing. God's not willing that any perish, but that all come to repentance. They may not get saved, but the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, God wants them to be. It is God's will for people to be saved. There's just some who won't come. It's not that they cannot come. It's that, that they will not come. Let me show it to you. Look at this verse. And Jesus said, and you will not come to me that you might have life. That verse doesn't say it says, and you cannot come to me. In other words, God hadn't selected so many to go to heaven and they go to hell. 
We know the Bible. God wants everybody, whosoever will. How much clearer can it be? Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely, God said. Well, I'm glad I preach a gospel that includes everybody and excludes nobody. Amen. The Bible said that God wants everybody to be saved. But let's just face it, not everybody's going to be saved. One of the most difficult things I've ever had to learn in my ministry is that there's just some people that you can't help. You know, I first thought when I was younger, and, and I still, this is probably, it's probably just dawned on me in the last, I don't know, five minutes now. But there are there's some people that I just can't help. I wished I could. You know, there's some people that, uh, there's some people that don't want help. No matter how much you reach out to them and plead with them and, and uh, reason with them. Come now, let us reason together. Say, no matter how much you reason with there's just some people you're not going to be able to help because they don't want help. I'll tell you, one of my pet peeves, I don't know if you're like this or not, I hate to get a fly in the car. I don't know if you're like that or not, but I hate to be going down the road just trying to enjoy myself and have a good time going somewhere or whatever, and I'm just driving down the road, or my, my wife, or we're just going down the road, and a fly gets in the car. Have you ever noticed they'll come over here and land on your window, and you'll either roll the window down or push the button, and, and, and they'll ride the window down, and about the time it gets to the very bottom where they're going to be sucked out, they'll leave there and go fly on the other window on the other side of the car. You push your button down, and here they go riding again. And about the time it gets down there, they'll fly to the back windshield. And two or three days later, you'll come out, their leg in the back windshield, windshield, belly up, with their tongue hanging out of their mouth, dead. You know why? You couldn't help them. They didn't want it. And though I know and I believe that God knows from the beginning who will and who will not be saved, foreknowledge of God, I still believe in every fiber of my being that God wants everybody to be saved. That's the word foreknowledge. But then the word predestination. The word predestination has everything to do with saved people and nothing to do with lost people. You see, after we get saved, it is then that God predestines us to be conformed to the image of God's own Son. Look at this verse right here, Romans chapter 8. For whom he did foreknow, God knew. He also, did, uh, he also did predestinate, he planned it, that those people that he foreknew would be conformed to the image of his Son. God loves his one only begotten Son so much that he wants all the rest of his children to be like his one and only begotten Son. And so God goes to work on us, conforming us into the image of His own Son. Foreknowledge. Predestination. Dealing with people who are saved. But there's the word election. What does that mean? Bible election. Why are we the elect? And what does it have to do with the election? Well, we know that when God saved us, He did three things for us. When God saved us, first of all, He called us. Number two, he changed us. But before God ever called us and God ever changed us, God first of all chose us. Now don't get quiet on me now. I'm getting nervous up here. So God called us. Well, aren't you glad God called you one day? 
I don't know if it was in a church through a preacher's message or a soul winner with a New Testament in his hand, a track, a gospel track. Or, but God, called, God spoke. He called us. After he called us, he changed us. But before he ever called us and before he ever changed us, he first of all chose us. And the doctrine of election is the act of God whereby he chose to save us before the foundation of the world. Look at this verse right here, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. I like what old Spurgeon said about it. He said, I sure am glad God chose me before I was born. Because if he, he had waited and chose me after I was born, he probably wouldn't have chose me. How about you? Before God ever laid the mud seals of this world, God chose you. And God chose me. I mean, Lord, think about how much he must have loved us. I mean, he had us, uh, you know, we sing that song, he, on, he, while he was on the cross, I was on his mind long before the cross. We was on his mind before Genesis 1-1, and I know the cross was as well. But thank God he chose us. John 15, verse number 16 says this, Ye have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you, you should go and bring forth fruit. That verse just teaches us God initiated the whole matter of salvation. Before I ever chose him, bless his good name, he first of all chose me. In fact, the only way I could have chose him was because he chose me. Isn't that a blessing? I know sometimes because, you know, we don't really know how to say it. Have you ever heard somebody maybe in a testimony meeting stand up before and say something like this? I found the Lord. And I know what they mean, and, and, and I appreciate that. But the truth of the matter is, we didn't find him. He found us. Before we chose him, he first of all chose us. Hey, we weren't looking for him no more than a thief's looking for a police officer. But I'm glad he came looking for me. And he elected me. And now I am the elect because I have been elected. He chose me. Now, I believe I'm of the persuasion that God's chosen everybody to be saved. I believe when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross for everybody. The Bible said in Hebrews 2 and verse number 9 that he, speaking of Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for every man. Regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of the size of your bank account, regardless of the size of uh, your political affiliation, and I know that's hard to believe, but it is, God still loves you and wants you to become a part of his family. You and I have been elected. I'm the elect because of the election. God chose me. He took the divine initiative. And God looks at the whole of humanity. And God says, I choose you. And I choose you. And I choose you. And I choose you. And I chose you before there was ever a world. I chose you to be my very own. Now, in a real sense. Well, I tell you, this is hard. I remember one night I solved the whole dilemma of the divine sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. But for the life of me, I can't remember how I did that. But I believe in the sovereignty of God. 
but also believe in the responsibility of man to, to choose to respond to the will of God for our lives. So we have elect, and then we have the word election. But there's another E word in the Bible I want to talk about just for a moment, and that's this word, the word eternal. Amen. The word eternal. The word eternal, listen to this, this amazed me. The word eternal is found 47 times throughout the Bible. But as much as we preach about eternity around here, did you know the word eternity is only found one time in the whole Bible? The word eternity. I mean, I would have thought before I looked and started counting things, I would have thought the word eternity was found throughout the whole Bible, but it's only mentioned one time. But the word eternal is mentioned 47 times throughout the Bible. Now, if something is eternal, that means it is without end. And we're told that God is the eternal God. The Bible said in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 33, verse 27, the eternal God. God is without end. By the way, God had no beginning and he'll never have an end. He is the eternal God. He is without end. There will never be a time when God will cease to be. He's an eternal God. Guess what? Look at me. We are eternal beings. I, I, I say this a lot, but you understand what I'm saying. There was a time when I was not. But now that I am, there will never be a time when I will not be. There was a time when you weren't. But now that you are, there will never be a time when you won't be. We are created, Genesis 1 and verse number 27, we're created in God's own image, in the image of God, created He Him, male and female, created He them. So when God created us, God created us with certain characteristics that God possesses. We are like God. Now, we're not gods. We become sons of God when we get born again, but we're not gods, but we're made kind of like God. Can I have an amen? We're God is an eternal God. We are eternal beings. I know one of these days my temporal life, my earthly life will be over, but uh, my eternal life will have just begun. There is a part of me that will never die. I know we read about obituaries for the body, but you never read about an obituary for the soul. You know why? The soul will never die. The soul is eternal. He's an eternal God. I'm an eternal being. And guess what? When I accept the Son of the eternal God, God gives me something called eternal life. It's a gift. Look at this. Romans 6, 23, you know it. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal. Not five-year life, not ten-year life. Somebody said, well, I'll tell you, I knew somebody, bless their heart, got saved, lived for God five years, and went back out into sin. They didn't have eternal life. They had five-year life. The kind of life that God gives us is eternal life. Eternal life. That simply means life without end. Eternal life is life without end in a land without end. So those of us that are saved, we possess right now eternal life. My earthly life is going to end, but my eternal life is waiting for me in His presence, waiting for me in His presence forever. Eternal life. You say, well, preacher, then if we got eternal life, what do unsaved people have? Eternal death. Eternal death. I, one of these days, because of what Jesus did, I will enjoy eternal life in the presence of God for in, a, in a perfect land, a life without end in a land without end. It's going to be wonderful. Amen. 
No Nancy Pelosi. Can I have an amen? amen. It's going to be wonderful over there. But I got to tell you this, for somebody who's not saved, there's no eternal life waiting for them. There's something called eternal death. Just as eternal life is life without end and a land without end, eternal death is death without end and a destruction without end. How sad and how tragic, the word eternal. Let me close with this one. Here's a good Bible word, and that is this word here, the word example. Example. That word is used a number of times throughout the Bible. We're told that Jesus is our example. Over in Second, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, we're told this. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us and, there's the word, example, that we, ye, should follow in his steps. You know, when, when we're treated badly, when we suffer because of what we believe, Jesus, Jesus gave us an example of how to do that. That next verse said, He did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth. Who, when He suffered, He threatened not again, but submitted Himself to the will of God. He's given us an example. We are to follow in His steps. And then we're told this. Look at this. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. You may tell you what's so tragically wrong with Christianity in the last days? Bad examples. Bad examples. How many times have you been witness to somebody and somebody throw up so-and-so that they work with, that cusses like a sailor, yet they sing in the choir? I know a man right now, bless his heart, and I love this man. I like him. I, I'll, I'll get to love him. But uh, he, he sings every Sunday morning in the church, in the church choir. And that man has got one of the filthiest mouths I've ever heard of anybody in my life. You me tell you what that old boy is? He is a bad example. If he's saved, he's a bad example of what a child of God ought to be. The Bible said that we're to be a, an example of the believers. Boom. In word. In our words. You can't be a good example and that old foul profanity come out of your... You ever thought about this? The sin of profanity is the dumbest sin anybody can ever commit. You know why you don't get anything for it but the judgment of God? At least if you steal a tire off a car, at least you got the wheel till the police officers catch up with you. I mean, at least you get the wheel. If you steal a piece of candy from the store, at least you get to eat the candy and be satisfied before they hit you with that stick and spray you with that May stuff, carry you off to jail. At least you get to enjoy the candy, the taste of the Tootsie Roll that you stole. What do you get for cussing? The judgment of God. Our word, we ought to be an example. What about this? Uh, in, in conversation, that means lifestyle. Boy, we ought to set a good example in our life. Not just here at church, but over at Walmart. In charity, that means love. Boy, we ought to love people. In spirit, that's attitude. You ever seen anybody saved on their way to heaven got a terrible attitude about them? And then in, in, in faith, faithfulness, in purity, in morally, we ought to be a good example in, in, in every area of our life so that we'll turn people toward the gospel and not away from the gospel. You ever heard this saying before? The reason so many people are going to hell is because of so many people who are going to heaven. Bad examples. 
So say them with me. We got the word elect. Who's, who is the elect? How many elect are in this room tonight? If you're saved. You know why we're, why we're the elect? Because of the election. That's right. God chose us. God voted. Somebody said this. God voted for me. The devil voted against me. It was one to one. And when I come to Jesus, I broke the tie. Election. Eternal. An example. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these good Bible words.